Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Despite the negative headlines we see each day about business, society, the climate and our future, there's one thing that keeps me optimistic. The power of innovation. More specifically, the track record of human ingenuity that has faced so many insurmountable challenges and time and again leveraged them as a springboard for thinking and the solutions that were quite literally unimaginable before. Given the scope and scale of challenges we face today, from the climate emergency to loss of biodiversity to ocean acidification, the next decade will require human imagination of an order never seen before. In fact, many commentators remark that this is arguably the most important decade in human history in terms of our fate and the health of the planet. So every story of innovation is critical because it's part of the self-fulfilling prophecy that humanity can course correct the future. Every solopreneur with an idea that reimagines or re-engineers an industry is a vote of confidence in that future. And every story we share builds and sustains momentum behind the belief that the future is a story we write together every day and that humanity will rise above these challenges. But where do you find such ideas? How do you get a business like this off the ground? And how do you ensure that it can be a viable and scalable business while also solving a pressing issue? These questions are not only critical to entrepreneurs hell-bent on solving challenges that are meaningful to them. They are foundational to a belief that this is not the beginning of the end for humanity, but rather the birthing pains of a business renaissance the likes of which we have never seen before. A renaissance in which we work with the planet rather than against it, and serve nature rather than steal from it, by recognizing our place within the natural order of things rather than thinking we control it. So let's celebrate such ideas, let's spotlight such businesses, and let's inspire each other so that together we can build a future we can all look forward to. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead With We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And today I'm talking with Matt Batuli, the CEO of Peeler, a company with a vision of a waste-free future. And they create products made of environmentally sensible materials that educate, inspire, and serve a global community of people that want to make a positive impact on our planet. And we'll be talking about how to reimagine a category as ubiquitous as waste and turn it into a high-growth opportunity. And then how to build out categories of products to not only expand the business, but also the solution for a sustainable future. So Matt, welcome to Lead With We. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. One thing that really caught my eye was this idea of creating a waste-free future. And it's a big idea. It's something we all intuitively know that we need, yet you hear various things like circular economy, where you know the, what goes into a product is brought back and recycled and reused. Help us understand, what does a waste-free future look like? Uh, I think circular is part of it, for sure. I mean, we're, we're kind of fans of everything when it comes to this, right? Like for us, the whole business, like Pila, Pila Case, 
blow me. Like there's ways to design waste out of life, right? You know, recycling, particularly with plastic, just doesn't seem to work. So we kind of went after it and said, are there alternative materials that we can be using? Like different kinds of solutions you can scale up. Circular is one element of it. I like to think of it as what can you make that has a graceful end of life, right? So like you can either return to the earth, get used for something new, and be done. And graceful means like it's easy and approachable and scalable. You know, like it doesn't take some monumental effort is kind of what we're going for. Like we just want to make it easy for people. Yeah. I think consumer adoption requires that it's easy and, and oh, the, the yeah. sort of thinking behind it is so sort of self-evident. It's just so frustrating for all of us that we haven't got there yet. And I think, you know, all of us ended up at this point where we want to be more purposeful through business for various reasons. And you've had a really interesting journey that I want to start with. So you came from sort of a retail entrepreneurial business background. I think your grandfather was in the furniture business, correct? Oh, yeah, man. I'm family retailers. My grandparents were in furniture and baby and toys. Like we have had stores in our family for 60 plus years and all kinds. Furniture was probably the big one that was like the longest lasting. Like even my my mom ran a furniture store, you know, up until like 15 years ago. So it's just, it's part of my life. Like selling things and stuff is part of my life. And then, so what was the next stage? If you look beyond the furniture business, I think you moved into commerce and, and, and media and so on. Yeah, I, I like, so I was really fortunate when I was 11, uh, like 10, 11 years old. My, so my father's an electrical engineer and I got access, I'm 41 now just for context. I got access to computers really early, like pre-internet early. So I got to play around with stuff that like most kids in my class weren't playing around with. I've always been in tech. Like I learned, I taught myself how to code. I did that like all through high school. I lasted three months at university and I took a job in Sweden, you know, just because like I loved everything, software, tech. So like, you know, when it came time for like, what am I going to do with my life? I just, I took sort of like the retail background and that translated really nicely when you combine like retail and I was, you know, I'm a software engineer. I was into selling things on the internet. So like right. very early thing that we call e-commerce that we all now take for granted. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was so ahead of the game, but also you are a certain kind of crazy like me and that you wrote a book that helped you kind of get there on the way, right? Yeah. Wrote a book 2016, 2017, I think. It came out around then. So I think I wrote it in like 2016. Uh, all of it, you know, in this industry, everything feels like a long time ago. Right. And then when I look at the clock, it's like, oh no, that was only five years ago. It just feels like it was a decade ago. Because everything in, especially in like digital commerce, it moves so fast. The last 10 years has felt like a hundred. You know, like when you look at like the evolution of retail, the last 10 years, it's felt like a hundred. So yeah, I, I was an idiot and decided to do a book. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It's, if you've ever got any spare time in your life, you know, that's great. It's like this sponge that sucks it all up. But it does. What I, what I love is that you've kind of, you had this retail origin and then you leaned into e-com and then you actually laid out a, a sort of roadmap for how you can be digital first. But yep. then how did you get connected with Jeremy? And, because it made such a difference to the business. The short answer to that was met at a mastermind event in that valley that a friend of ours, uh, his name is Jason Gander. He runs this thing called Mastermind Talks. MMT. That was like seven years ago. I met Jeremy and our other partner, Brad, there. I had another company at the time. Uh, and I just, I really liked what Jeremy was doing. Like he had this, this, like this material science. He was making this, like this prototype phone case out of it. Hadn't really commercialized it yet. So like there was no revenue in this business. 
but his mission and his like his vision for everything was pretty compelling, at least for me, right? Like I'm an avid mountain biker. I love being outside, a skier, all the things. So I live in the mountains. Now my current company was doing pretty well. Met Jeremy, decided to invest in Jeremy. And then when I sold that company, uh, I went even deeper into, into Pilo with Jeremy. And we, then we brought in Brad and we raised venture capital and like the whole thing kind of, we are where we are today. And, and you know, I want to sort of point back to that for a second, because I think in similar ways, I was an ad guy for like 16, 18 years all around the world. And I was just selling stuff, whether it's cars or crisps or sneakers or whatever it was, totally oblivious to the impact of those products oh, on man. the environment and our future. And now when I look back, I feel a real sense of sort of responsibility. So how did you, what was that moment that triggered you to be more purposeful in a sense? Honestly, I, so I, I was starting to think about it, you know, like with my last company, similar to you, right? Um, sold a lot of stuff, like billions, billions worth of stuff over, you know, 10 years. And never really, like when you're in the thick of it, you don't really think about sort of the impact of that stuff much. And started to have conversations with friends, like in the, just like, you know, how recyclable is some of this stuff, right? And, or, or like, what is the end of life for what we're selling? And when you're selling mattresses and car seats and pet things, like there is no end of life. Right. So right. Jeremy just, I think when I met Jeremy and uh, it was my first introduction into like compostable plastics and plastic alternatives, like, you know, pressed paper for, you know, uh, to go food containers. Like he kind of opened my eyes to, there's this whole material science world that I did, I wasn't even aware of. And I started looking at that thinking like, man, think of like every category of products that we as consumers buy and consume and the innovation that new material science is going to allow for, whether that's making things more durable or making things go away faster. It's just like this middle ground where we're at right now. Like it, it really blew me away. And when the opportunity arose to sell my last business, it just seemed like I was just so personally aligned with what we were working on at Pila. I'm like, if I'm going to do something, like I don't want to retire. I was too young. I still like to build things. So it was kind of a, I'm going to put some time into it. I may as well like dedicate life force here. Right. It's, it's a it is. It's interesting. There's that moment in our lives when it just shows up where there's intersection between who you are and what you do becomes increasingly important to you. And yeah. for those who don't know about Peeler and its background, like give us a sense of why the company was started by Jeremy and the family. What was that sort of ex first experience that led him to kind of do the research, materiality sort of research in and around developing a new material that was biodegradable and so on? Yeah. I mean, Jeremy's whole thing was he was on a beach in Hawaii with his kids, right? And if you've ever been on like beaches in California, Hawaii, like anywhere in the world now, the plastic problem becomes quite evident quite quickly. Like just take a little kid to the beach, tell them to go pick up uh, shells and stuff and they'll yeah. bring you back plastic because right. they don't know the difference. Right. So it kind of started there. And, you know, he started looking around thinking like, there's got to be solutions to this problem. And I think he actually wound up on making a phone case because it was actually brilliant, right? He's like, look, there's a billion smartphones sold every year. 80% of them get a case. That's plastic. And we, and we buy new phones every year for years. It's like, it's this, this big source of waste that was kind of not being pay a lot of attention. And I liked it because the industry had a margin profile on the product that you could actually build a business around, right? We often get the question like, why not water bottles? Why not straws? Why? I'm like, well, these are commodity items that you, there's no margin in the product. It's the same reason that like 
Tesla started with the Roadster $250,000 sports car and not the Model 3 $40,000 everyday car, right? Like you have to get to that point. So Jeremy's whole origin was brilliant. And I think where we started as a product made a lot of sense. I love what you're saying there because sometimes people feel like if they're going to be purposeful, they've got to kind of leave their business acumen at the door, but you recognize the need for a margin, a business opportunity, and yeah. it, it reframes every one of these problems as an opportunity in disguise. It's really tricky. Like there's, there's an opinion out there. There's like this growing opinion that like business and, and for good should mix, right? Like that's what philanthropy is for and business is business. I tend to disagree. I think that you could build great business and have good impact. And that like those two things actually, not only can they co coexist, but they're actually quite supportive of one another. Patagonia being obviously like the golden child of this, sure. this sort of world. You know, so I think if you design a business from the ground up with purpose and impact in mind, it works quite well. If you try to like shoehorn it into an existing company later, I think that's much harder to do for a yeah. bunch of reasons. I don't think it's impossible. I just think it's harder. Yeah, it is harder. And I got to say, as an Australian who grew up in the water and who spends a lot of time in the water now, being a very poor surfer, like the, the plastics in the ocean just guts me. And I, I know that the Guardian reported that by 2050, it's estimated that there'll be more plastic by weight than fish in the oceans yeah. to give you a sense of how serious it is. But here's the head scratcher for me. If there is a solution out there, which Peeler has demonstrated, why the hell has it taken so long for anyone to do it? Why are we still just churning out all of this damaging, destructive yeah. plastic all the time? Why is that? So it's a, it's a big question. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you like the very simple, there's a couple simple answers to it because we think, I think of this a lot. You know, the, the real answer to that actually comes down to infrastructure. So for you and for anybody listening, like think of your own home, you probably have a box, right? And a, and a garbage bin. So like there's a place for you to put what is deemed recyclable and a place for you to put what is not. And in some cities like San Francisco or you know Toronto, uh, Vancouver, you might even have a little bin for your food waste, right? Right. Some places, Australia, they will, you know, parts of Europe, they will. So when I say that the reason that the real reason why we don't transition to not to plastic alternatives is infrastructure, it's the simplest way to think about it is there's not a box for that stuff, right? So there's nowhere to send a compostable straw or a, a Starbucks cup that's compostable. When that stuff gets to existing recycling facilities and landfills of compost manufacturers, is what they're called, they pick them out, right? They don't know what's compostable, what's not. So we don't have systems to identify these products. We don't have standards for these products. And we certainly don't have infrastructure for them. Let me ask you why, why? Because I feel so guilty. I mean, we compost, we've actually got a loamy, you know, we, we, yeah. you know, I've got a, a, a wooden toothbrush, you know, we yep. drive electric cars. I'm trying to show up meaningfully, but every time we get our groceries, no matter how hard we try, you got all that plastic and crap if I we get takeout. So, so what, what is, is it the subsidies? Is it lobbying? What enables this problem? That's where it gets more complicated. Yeah. Like, I think what you have to remember too, is the waste management industry is $2.5 trillion a year globally. Right. It's a big one. It's actually one of the biggest. Like we like, I like waste as a problem area to focus on because it's one of the, it's like death. It's, it's super consistent. Like, right. Right. It's hard die. to avoid. Yeah. So, 
it is this monster industry that's been around a long time. It's very profitable and it is super resistant to change. Right. Right. Uh, like the way waste works is like these private companies get contracts, bid out contracts with cities and then the cities tax you and the, the taxes basically flow over to the private company to pick up your garbage. So you've got a system that's worth trillions, that's super entrenched, that doesn't want anything to change. Like there's a lot of incentive there on the other end of this, like if you think of it as a balance, right? right. So I think that's part of it. I, I think it's lobbying. I think it's just, I actually just think it's more incentives that are, that are broken. You know, the whole reason for Lomi was honestly, like we looked at it, we said, okay, if Tesla can put a gas station in your garage in the form of a charger, why can't we decentralize parts of waste management? It's like, what if we distributed in the same way that Tesla is going after charging infrastructure, right? That was the entire idea was like, let's solve this part of the, the waste management industry that governments and those businesses don't want to do. Right, right. And for those who don't know, Lomi is a, it's a composter that sits on your counter and we use it at home and it can take all your waste, you know, 80% of your otherwise waste and actually turn it into compost that can be distributed in your garden yeah. and, and, and returned yeah. to the earth. And, you know, what's so terrible about what you're revealing is that we as consumers, as citizens, stakeholders in the future, enable this system by buying the stuff that's wrapped in plastic. And then we pay the taxes that are used to then sustain the industry that is stalling any innovation. And it just does my head in. You yeah, know? like Coca-Cola and, and these CPG companies, they, they don't pay for this, right? We do. So we buy it and we pay for it to be cleaned up and taken away. And that's a, I mean, it's, 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 it's a real misalignment of incentives with multiple stakeholders. It's a very, very complex industry with a complex set of issues because there are so many types of waste. Like what you just hit on when you go to that, like the grocery store, supermarket, it, it doesn't matter how hard you try, right? There is, there is always a certain amount of packaging that you're going to get with whatever you're buying. You didn't, as a consumer, you're not showing up and saying, you know what I want today? I want packaging. Right. You don't need that. You say like, I'm going here, I need soap. I need whatever, produce. Like you're going in to buy a product. The packaging is just, we've accepted as part of reality. Yeah. And we're not actually, we don't want that. So I, I, I think the second thing that you hit on right here is really important that I, I don't believe enough people have, uh, have like the, the right mindset around this is that like what you buy is actually a more important vote than who you actually vote for in elections. Right. Like companies and commerce makes the world go round. Politicians do not. Politicians just get up on stage. Yeah. It is the very big companies of the world that make everything happen. So as a consumer, we're three quarters of the US GDP, right? Three right. quarters. Right. We have a tremendous amount of power with no, where we put our I, I think so. And you're seeing with younger generations, you know, really self-organizing and using yes. social technologies to do so. And I hear you loud and clear. I think it's a lot of these large companies with the way they incentivize politicians through lobbying on both sides of the aisle to do certain things, they really are instrumental in what our future or our present, our future looks like. And like shifting gears for a second, these souls, if they were that easy, would have been done that much sooner. How hard was it to, you know, in terms of trial and error and so on, to come up with a material that could in fact create waste that could break down? And I know that yeah, um, sure. yours is called flax stick, right? Yeah, ours is a corn and flax sort of uh, resin that we make. It's corn-based. And, you know, so here's the interesting thing. 
a lot of these materials, they've been around for 20, 25 years. Right. Like this, this is not, for a lot of times, it's actually not new technology. It's just never been invested in, in a large enough scale to become like commercially viable. Right. So like we've never had a, a plastic alternative up until very recently where, you know, you could go to a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola and say, I have something that is cost equivalent to the oil-based resin that you're buying and it checks all the boxes, right? And it's the same price. Right. That's, that's only like, that's only just starting to happen right now. You know, like we have businesses like Danimer Scientific and Footprint and these companies are, are making huge strides in material science in what I call like high velocity waste. Right. So it's like, it's the Uber Eats to go containers and the, the, like the, those, you know, those styrofoam trays that your meat comes in, mm -hmm. like all of those things that are brutal for the planet. We are making tremendous strides right now. Like not us, but like the industry as a whole. So I don't think we're far away. We still have an infrastructure problem though. Like we still have the government sitting there saying, I get that you can sell these things, but we don't have a box for those things to go into. Yeah. And that, that can change, but I understand how difficult that is. It's a sort of shift in priorities and whether it's the tenure of a politician or a, someone in charge at a state or national level, it's really, really tough. But just, you know... For those who don't know, tell us what Pila makes and, and, you know, the breadth of your product offerings and also how they break down Yeah, because that's what makes them so different. Yeah. I, the way to think of our company is we have two brands. We have Pila Case and we have Lomi. And, you know, Pila Case is a material science company. So we, we go out in the world, we invent and we source plastic alternatives, right? So like the main one that we use is Flaxtick, but we also have another, a clear material that we use to make some phone cases with. We make phone cases, watch straps, AirPod cases, like, like everyday accessories, right? Um, it's like everyday products without everyday waste is what we like to say. So that's the case, you know, and those products, they are designed to be uh, backyard compostable. So like if you have a backyard compost or a loam here, something that can take that, uh, like take a peel case and put it in with like food waste and other organics, it is designed to break down right. and do it quickly. Like, Call it under a year. And what does, it break down, what does it break down to? So people understand it breaks down to its constituent elements, right? Yeah, like by biomass. Like it just, it's, it breaks down to like humus. It's fill. Right. Uh, it's got no, um, it's got no like, you know, organic property to it. It's not, you're not going to grow plants in a peeler case, right? But it can break back down and live in the soil and it's not harmful. And it's, it's so actually it's like carbon, water, sort of organic biomass, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, base building blocks. And it actually, this thing has been tested, not just by us, labs. Like we have, I've got, there's 1.2 million customers in Pila Case globally. And these are people that like, over the years, we've watched them put their cases in their compost. We've watched them degrade. Like right. they've put videos online. Like, so the product works. We know it works. It's quite, it works quite well. So that's like one side of the business. The other side of the business is Lomi. And that's like, Let's get people a better home for organic waste and, and simple compostables, right? Like, let's bring this idea of like, you know, not everybody can have a backyard compost. They don't have space or time. Or like, you live in California. I live in the northern hem part of North America. We have winter. And having a backyard compost in winter, it, it's damn near impossible. 
Right. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and weather doesn't help us. No. It, I totally get that, and it makes it easy and convenient. And it's just retraining yourself, literally, in the kitchen, where I'm like, okay, all these different sort of organic matter and so on. You just put it in there, so you can pop it in the loamy, and and you're away. But you mentioned a really important point here. It's like, you know, you've got 1.2 million customers and so on. Who are these customers? Are they, and for want of a better word, and I'm sort of being silly about it, but like greenies and save the world people and people like Simon standing here, or is it, you know, or is it these younger demos coming through, you know, millennials and Gen Z, or is it socially aware kind of all the demographics who are saying, hey, we want to make a difference in the world. Like who is showing up and, and why isn't it happening more broadly or do you see it rising? Yeah. I'll, so I got, I got two answers for you. So the first is Pila Case is largely, I would, I would I describe it's like 85, 90% female and under the age of 25. Interesting. Is that, do you like, target that or is that just happens organically? Uh, that, you know, that started really early on that we just noticed that that was the person that showed up. Right. Right. So now we obviously, we target those, that, that customer. And, you know, we really, we know that customer well. Like whenever I see a, a dude with a Pila case, I just assume that his girlfriend, her wife bought it for him. Right. Like that's, that's, you know, cause we, I get, like, we have enough customer stories that I know that. Lomi, however, is a wildly different answer. Right. And Lomi has, oddly enough, it's not a hardcore green buyer. Right. It's actually uh, a third of our customers are boomers. A third are Gen X. Right. So like two thirds of Lomi's customers are over the age of 50 and they're more interested in like kitchen cleanup, kitchen smell, convenience, like our Gen X, our boomer customers, you know, it's the weight of garbage. Right. It's heavy. It's, it's, uh, I like I'm 70 years old. You know, if I fill a garbage can in my kitchen full of food waste, it is a pain in the butt to bring that outside or down the elevator. So, so there's like, convenience and there's a real convenience yeah. element to this. And then like, we also have this like gardening person and that tends to be an older person. So like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know too many 25 year old gardeners. Like right. they all tend. I've started to garden. It's an indication of age. I'm on my way out. I'm enjoying though, the garden. Like, yeah. yeah. Like me, right? Like this is, we started growing food this year and I looked at my wife and I'm like, we're officially old. I know, like, right? It's happened. It's happened. We're like our parents. Food. We're like our parents. Yeah. Exactly. So it is, Lowy definitely appeals more to like gardeners or like hardcore, uh, like kitchen, like cook a lot, very healthy. Right. people's like plant-based diet, major alignment there. Um, right. I think price point on Lomi, it is pricier. So it, it, you don't get a lot of younger people buying it. You know, Gen Z just doesn't have the disposable income that somebody over 40 does. Right. We get a lot of interest and there's a lot of gifting that happens for the older generation, the younger generation with Lomi. But I actually like what really makes me happy with Lomi is it is not just a green purchase. No, I, yeah, and I love how you, we were talking a little while ago, you were looking at the margin and how there was a business inherent in solving for this very real environmental issue. Have you found that the, the opportunity is just really boundless and there's just so much market opportunity out there? Like I, I sometimes wonder in the same way I was asking about why we haven't solved for plastic earlier, if there's a business inherent in here, why have not more companies, the people that make the phones in the first place, yeah. for God's sake, why have they not started to do that? Um. It's a, uh, it's a really great question. And I'm not just saying that. It's actually a really great question. And I've been at this now six years, like really digging into Pila. And I can tell you that the prevailing thought amongst entrepreneurs, brand builders, big and small, is that the customer who buys with their values is, is a very niche market, right? 
And I broadly agree with that statement. I think that if you show up to the market, to the global market, and your only value proposition is it's a better for the planet product, that you are limiting, you are very limited in the size scope of what that business can become. So like, I believe that you could show up to the global market with a product or a service with that positioning, that, that set of values, but you need to make sure that it is of equivalent or equivalent price or greater value to what they're currently buying. Sure, sure. And if you, if you can do that, both of those things simultaneously, I believe the upside is tremendous. Yeah, I think, you know, purpose, sustainability, impact rarely is a silver bullet. You need to have that core value proposition to the consumer that makes it appealing in the first place. I want to flip that around for a second though and say, well, hold it. What if somebody comes along and says, you're doing a better job or a responsible job, but you're still piggybacking on what is consumable goods that by definition, you've got another iPhone coming out every year and so on. So it's in a sense, you're doing a better job that almost enables the problem in the first place. I know it's such a weird thing. Like this is like the forever battle of being a business like ours that has a, uh, like we're a mission with a business, right? Like that's kind of how we look at things. Like we're a mission. And it's actually really difficult to build this kind of company because like we, we almost handcuff ourselves with our values. Like we don't sell any product and peel a case that doesn't actually have a graceful end of life. Right. You know, so like most people, most of my friends would be like, well, why aren't you selling like other mobile accessories or other things that clearly your customer would buy it? I'm like, yeah, but, but we haven't figured out the material side of those things right, yet. Right, right. Or the story or how it folds in. Like it just doesn't feel brand aligned. The, the direct answer to your question is, is something along the lines of consumers are going to buy these things anyway. Whether we're here or not, pe- people buy things. My goal is give them a better alternative, Mm. right? And then every time I convince one person to buy the better alternative, my hope is that 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 spreads a little further, that they tell their friends, they tell their parents, like that it just, it starts to spread. And we actually like, we we, we are marketing a lot of times is to encourage people not to, to be overly consumeristic, like, you know, with Lomi, like I work constantly telling people like, look, do not buy this machine if you have a backyard compost or you own chickens or right, like, right. if you use things the old way, don't buy Lomi. Like that doesn't make sense. Right, right. You know, I'd also build on that and say, because, you know, it's it's not just peculiar to Pila. It's so many other companies out there that are sort of providing better for you, better for planet products within existing industries. We can only do so much in the lanes that we've chosen and you're doing a great job there. There are a lot of other market forces that are changing the very products that are being made. For example, modular phones that aren't sort of inherently wasteful, you know, and so on and so on. So everybody's got to do their job through the different sort of vantage points that they have. You mentioned something interesting though, which was story. You need that inherent product benefit, as you said, and, 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 you know, purpose or sustainability isn't a silver bullet. So what do you go to market with? Like there's lots of purposeful social entrepreneurs and business leaders listening to this and sort of, do you lead with, Hey, it's a great phone case, or do you lead with, this is a great composter or do you lead with, Hey, let's be more responsible to our future. Uh, I mean, the answer is I do all of the above. So like I'm a, I'm a self-admitted marketer. So like, I really love, I spend so much time thinking about stories and copy and positioning and like, I just, that's the majority of my days go like that. Right. Right. How do I better communicate 
what we do and how we can help a customer. You know, so feel a case, like we really lean into design. Like we're always launching new designs because right. we know that fashion is an important part of that industry. So like we launch 12 new designs every month in Peel Case. Right. So I lead up that product. We actually lead design first. Say so like, look, if you're going to buy products like fashion accessories, we're going to give you all the designs, all the creativity, all that stuff that you expect, but with a better underlying environmental footprint. Right. Right. So you, they'll feel good about what you're buying. That's Peel Case. You know, with Lomi, the thing that we really really focus on is, is less, you know, you should care about composting. You should be in the comp. Like it's less about that, like that hardcore eco thing. And it's way more, uh, focused on convenience and comfort for the, for the customer. Right. You know, like one of the things that I, I talk a lot about with Lomi is like, you think about your home, so much of the average home has gotten, has it been innovated on, right? Like we have a smart everything. Right. Except, except for garbage. Except us. We're, no, not, we're not getting any smarter, clearly, because we're putting ourselves out as you know, out of business. But yeah. Right. So we really go after like the, like the inconvenience and the, like the smell and right. the pests and all that stuff that comes with like just food waste yeah. in the kitchen. That's the lead message. You know, and that touches on something which I think is really important. I mean, you've waded into the waste management space, the sustainability space, and you must have tried different access points over the last six years and so on. What are some tips for those folks who also want to either reduce waste in their life or if they want to have a company that takes on the waste problem from another vantage point? You must have made mistakes or run into headwinds on the way. What would you What would you share? Oh, man. I'll tell you like the... I would, I'll give you the biggest mistake we made with launching Lormi was assuming that it was the same customer as Peel Case. Right. Like we assumed that the customer who was going to buy Lormi, like, like I call them supers, like super users, super consumers. I assumed that it was going to be somebody who was buying it for uh, like, I want it to do good. Like that would be their reason, right? So that I, our assumption was that the customer would be under 30, really cares about making a difference in the world. Right. You know? Turns out the average age of my customer is 47, hmm. um, cares more about themselves than the world. But here's the key thing. Uh, and if I showed you like our demographic, it's like graphic data, like we are predominantly, like pol even politically, predominantly independents. Right. And we have just as many right wing as we do left wing. Right, right. In the States. Like it's, it's perfectly split. There's no... This is not some like left-leaning extreme greedy that buys this product. I love that too, because honestly, I keep saying our future and enabling a planet to live on is not a political issue. It's a human being God. issue. And most human beings, regardless of politics in the US, I've seen data on this. It's, you know, it doesn't matter what party you vote for. Like I think 80, 84, 85% of people believe in climate change. They believe it's a problem. They want to see solutions. Um, they just disagree on how, right? right. So like, what we found with Lomi and I, my advice to people is like, whatever you think, whoever you think your customer is, you're probably wrong. And you're not going to know that until you really get in market and start testing things out. Right. You know, what we found with Lomi was people buy it because they feel like it's an easy thing they can do. Like it's something that they can do. Right. And it's not like, I'm not relying on government. I'm not relying on some other big business. You know, it's like, it's easy. I just pull my food in here. I hit a button and that makes them feel good. And I, my, like if you're an entrepreneur or business, anything, and you're thinking of building something, a product or service that's for impact, I got a few thoughts, a couple thoughts. One, uh, perfect is the enemy of progress. You know, so when it comes to like anything environmental climate solutions, 
most of the criticism comes down to something not being perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ridiculous. We need progress. We don't need perfect. Number two is whatever you're going to go into, whatever the product is, whether it's waste or whether it's something else, I think you have to start with the assumption that all people, all of us, we're all selfish. We all care first and foremost about how something impacts us. Once you answer that question, then you can show them, oh, it's like the impact is the, oh, by the way. Right. Right. It's like the, oh yeah, I don't know if you knew this, but like. It is. It's like the insurance policy that wins the day. Although I will say I'm seeing more and more now, the cost efficiencies is finally getting there where you can compete on price and then it wins the day. And for the first time, we're seeing research out of Asia, which says that actually consumers are consciously choosing and paying a premium for sustainable products. And I think as, as all of these issues, especially with these daily reminders from Mother Nature, whether it's, you know, hurricanes in Florida or fires on the West Coast, you know, this extreme weather that is you know, symptomatic of the climate emergency, it's going to be like, wow, we've all got to show up differently in the world. So I think yeah. that's going to increase. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, like, I, I believe it's, there's never been a better time to be alive in human history. I really do. I think every single problem that I read about, my wife and I were talking about this last night. It's like, you know, when you're in this space, like you are or I am, it can be very easy to be depressed about like the magnitude of some of these issues. Yeah, sometimes you look at the headlines all the time and you're like, oh my God, like, what are yeah, we going to do? Like, I, like, I went to bed the other night. I'm like, we're, we're screwed. Yeah. Like, this, <laughs> yeah but then it, but at the same time, I know so many people working on so many cool things and like, and I just, I, I, I believe in humanity's ability to innovate and create. Yeah. And I think like as dire as some of this stuff might sound sometimes, I, I'm hopeful and I, I just know too many smart people working on it. No, I, I agree. And I also think, you know, if you're given a choice between a period in human history where through our own lack of information or a naivete or selfishness, we assume that we could consume as much as we want and the world had infinite resources and we could all yeah. live obliviously. Or we're at a moment in time where our very future is at stake and we can all show up and, and really live truly significant lives. I'd actually take the latter because, you know, I think, you know, when you do had the, the sort of perspective of the comparison, I, I think one's much better than the other. You mentioned something which is relevant to that is you haven't released certain products because they're not aligned with your purpose or mission. And I was wondering, how do you make decisions about where to put your focus? I mean, is there criteria that drives your decision-making? Because God knows you've got all the world to choose from in terms of waste issues to oh, deal man. with. So, yeah. so, so how do you know, where, know what to do and what not to do? The answer to that is actually, uh, it's less about what to do, it's more about when. Okay. So I'm a big believer in, in just timing and sequence, always have been. You know, it's, it's like the plane analogy, right? If you ever sit in the cockpit of a, of a, of a jet, like there's like a thousand switches there right. and pilots just know the order in which to hit all the switches to make that thing sing. Um, mm -hmm. So I think when you're like, for us, the way I look at things, like we've got, I've got five years of chronic roadmap right now laid out in front of me, you know, and more coming and we have tons of ideas. Right. And we kind of have like just these operating principles that help us figure out like that, that's a great idea, but it's just the wrong time, you know? Like, mm. so for me, it's like, what's the lead domino? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And, and then how do we build our category, right? Like that's, I love in business. I love this idea of category creation, you know, like with Pila Case, we showed up to the, like one of the most competitive, most commoditized 
markets in the world, which is mobile accessories. It's right. like, could get more commoditized. Yep. And we created a category within it that nobody ever seen before, right? Like we made the world's first compostable phone case. And I appealed to a whole swath of customers that just felt like they weren't being served. Yep. So I kind of look at everything now and I say like, okay, if I'm creating categories, right? Like Lomi is creating a new category, waste. Like we call it smart waste, right? Like waste is dumb. I want to make it smart. Mm -hmm. And if that's the true and I'm building a new category, then I look at it like from the category lens, what products do I have to release and in which order to build the whole category? And that also means that other people, competitors are going to enter my category, right? Like that's okay. Yeah. It's about building the category. Right. Yeah. I know, you know, a couple of things I want to I noticed. One is compostable wedding rings. I mean, I put a smile on my face. I've been married 29 years, 30th yeah. wedding anniversary. The idea of a compostable wedding ring. Wasn't that funny? It is funny. It's kind of like yeah. uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, uh, till to, to death to us part. Of, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. What, until we're composted. There's, like what? this, there's yeah. this whole market of people out there, like these CrossFitters and athletes who it's a, it's a fashion accessory. They want to have a ring on. But like they trash them at alarming rate. So like the whole silicone ring industry exploded. Oh, okay. So we were like, okay, well, instead of buying a silicone one, why don't we just, why don't we, we partner up with Kalo, which is a silicone ring company. And we gave them our material science and said, make, make up a ring out of our materials. Right. You know, and, and we're going to do other things with them too. Like there's other products coming that I think are like, they're fun products. You know, the other, the other way I think of, the peel of case materials, what we do there. We've also tackled products that are not obvious. And I've got some things coming. I can't tell you about them, but like. Come on, you can oh, hear it here first. You can hear it here no, first, Matt. You know, gonna like, all right, all right. I, I have legal battles if I do. You would have uh, to kill you. I get it. I get it. Probably. Yeah. Um, you know, like we're working on some stuff right now that it's, it's the idea is this. If you could make that product have a graceful end of life, why the hell can't we figure out the wrappers and the the bottles? Like, sure. it's like, go to the extremes, right? Yeah. You know, like really use, like you're an ad guy, like use the story to show people what the potential is. Yeah. And then you mentioned something interesting, which is that you love building out product categories and you've got a five-year roadmap for product launches and so on. Oh yeah. Give us a sense of the sort of parent company enterprise level in a sense that like you've got, you know, Peeler Earth, you know, and, and you've got all these different products coming out down the road. What's that architecture look like as you think through A, scaling up individual categories, but B, expanding those product categories? Right now, I'll say like the next five years, like we're really, you know, separating out and saying like there's Pila Case as a brand and a set of products and there's Lomi as a brand. And Lomi, the product roadmap in Lomi is really ambitious, right? Like when I say smart waste, like I really do, I want to connect the world to garbage. Right. Like I want this to be, this product in this category to be something like we've never had at a household level, never had information about how people throw things out. Right. Right. So like I'm looking at everything waste in the home and saying, you know, there are ways to turn that waste into, into valuable, valuable stuff. So like in the case of Flomi, it's like, I want to take food waste and turn it into a better fertilizer than what you can buy in a store. So it's like, can I build product roadmap where it's, it's not even about these There was a time before Elon Musk came along with Tesla where people just saw a car as, as a way of getting from point A to B to get on with your life. Now it's been totally reframed as 
a statement about yourself and your values, you know, an investment in a more sustainable future and so on and so on. And in a similar way, I get a sense that you're looking at something which was almost an afterthought, which is we consume, we bring things into our home, we create waste, but we just throw it away. We literally throw it away. And you're looking at that, that segment of the product life cycle and saying, wow, there's, not, there's just nothing but opportunity here. Huge amounts of opportunity. Yeah. Like I, I look at like even what comes out of Lomi as that alone is a product and a business. You right. know, like we, we just finished a, uh, our whole summer up here in the Okanagan. Um, we, we partnered up with a farm and the University of Toronto to test the efficacy of the output of Lomi as a fertilizer in farming. Hmm. Right. And hmm. We're going to release the results, I think. I don't know when the show comes out, but th those results will come out like towards the end of October. It, it's shocking. Like the, what came out of a Lomi performed better as a fertilizer than the number one organic fertilizer brand in store in America. And it performed better than traditional compost in improving yields. Like actual, so we tested growing like broccoli, cauliflower, I think another crop. I mean, and that's astounding. Wild. That's astounding. I mean, you just... Yeah. And you know what it, it provokes in me is this idea that waste is almost a misnomer in as much as yeah. in the natural world, nothing's waste. There's all these no. codependencies and mutualities within these ecosystems that enable everything to thrive. So, yeah. I mean, I think reframing the whole idea of waste is a powerful opportunity as well. This is why I, I, I don't look at like products, right? And you know, just go back to that question of like, what, what do we advise people to do? And I say, I look at the category and I say, okay, if my category is smart waste, which is taking something that is otherwise dumb and making it smart, then our product roadmap needs to be all about enabling that category. Right. You know, so like the output of a Lomi is a product in and of itself. The data that we collect from running a Lomi, that is a product. And what we build on top of that data are products. Yeah, I, you know? I love that because it's sort of... Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking of the word product as a noun, like there it is. It is in fact a product of something, you know, it is an output and as, as, as a verb. And, and one other question I had was, you know, obviously with this large roadmap, expanding categories, big ambitions and so on, you've got to, yeah, and there is a margin inherent in this, um, especially in phone cases and things like that. But how do you fuel this growth? Have you, I think you, I know you brought on some investors and you've got some high Profile investors like Jay Z and Jay Brown and so on. Like, how have you enabled the growth, and has that celebrity aspect made a difference? I'll tell you, like the, I would say, forget the celebrity thing from a consumer perspective. I think, you know, the way we look at who our investors are is it's access and influence, right? Right. So if you're going to raise money, like this is my first time raising outside capital. Like my first business was fully bootstrapped. Brad's first companies were fully bootstrapped. That's always fun, right? The bootstrap business. It's, it's harder. It's harder. Uh, it keeps you awake I at night. It's harder, just longer, longer, um, longer, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Longer. Yeah. And I think, you know, where having high profile investors comes like in really handy is almost like market signals and credibility, right. you know, like that. And it doesn't need to be a celebrity, right? It can just be like, you can get a top tier venture firm who can also add that cred credibility to you. So like, I like J and J and, and Larry over at Marcy because like, they're just savvy investors. You know, right. like those guys are, are like major, major hands in, uh, they have a major hand in like water culture in America. Right. Um, so for us, it was really important while getting them on board, um, just as a signal that like what we're doing here is important and it's not just niche, it's actually, it's bigger than 
this little narrow thing that we're working on, right? Right. Um, so we continue, like we just finished a fundraise, uh, wrapping it up right now for a Series B. If like those guys came in again, our existing investors have been incredible in supporting the company. That's amazing. You know? it's, it's great to hear. And I mean, I know you can't tell us anything, but you have this five-year product roadmap and some exciting things and so on. What can you tell us about the next few years, what we can expect? Uh, I mean, the next version of Romy is is launching early next year, right? And uh, it, it's like the product itself is really impressive. You know, the version that that we've got right now at market, like that took us three years to make that thing, and it's taken us about eighteen months to make an even better, like a much bigger evolutionary jump now in the technology, right? Right. Um, and just like I, I think what we're doing digitally. With the next version of Lamy is is like is so cool. Right. Uh, I think I think we're gonna really connect waste. We're gonna connect people to their waste in a way that nobody's thought of it before. Yeah, you know what I have to say, Matt. I think that's what's so powerful. What I'm taking away from this chat is that you're reframing a concept that inhabits all of our lives. This idea of yep. waste and putting it to work for our future rather than against it. And I want to say just hats off to you know everyone at the Peeler team, Jeremy, yourself. And just go like hell, because this is such an important issue to solve for. And it takes collaboration between all stakeholders. You know, you yes. need advocacy, you need politicians, you need the companies behind them, you need entrepreneurs like yourself, and you need consumers like me that actually get out there and actually enable those companies to thrive. So much respect and, and here's to the future success of Pilar. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all... Lead with weeding.